again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. And if you're a repeat listener, welcome back. My name is Jeffrey Kwame, your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to cultivate and maintain the highest standards of professional professional practice within the recovery field. This podcast is in furtherance of that mission, and on behalf of the Board of Directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. The number of individuals involved in the criminal justice system in America totals nearly 7 million, with 2.3 million Americans currently incarcerated in jails or prisons. This accounts for about 25% of the total incarcerated population of the entire world. Looking even deeper at the numbers, we see that nearly 5 million people formerly incarcerated live in our country, as well as 19 million total who have felony convictions and a total of 77 million people with a criminal record. Most of these folks will face collateral uh, consequences long after the sentence ends, loss of voting rights, housing, education, and employment difficulties, as well as many other restrictions. The system, as designed, makes it nearly impossible to escape these long-term consequences. On March 2nd, DreamWorks Justice sponsors the Day of Empathy to take action to generate empathy on a massive scale for millions of Americans impacted by the criminal justice system. On this day, Americans impacted by that system nationwide meet with lawmakers in their state to share stories and experiences, educate and breed empathy in their state representatives and community members. Our guest today is Lewis Reed, Director of Organizing and Partnerships for Dream Core Justice. His years of experience in government, criminal justice expertise, policy advocacy, business, and public health. Lewis is a Council of Criminal Justice trustee, Forum Coaches Council member, Huffington Post contributor on prison traumatic stress disorder, and has appeared on CNN, CBSN, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, and in national publications. Lewis has received many awards recognizing his work in leadership, and he is a board-certified and licensed addictions counselor, and we are proud to say that his board certification comes directly from the Connecticut Certification Board, and we're very proud to have him. Welcome to the show, Lewis. Thanks so much for having me, uh, Jeff. I, I appreciate being on. Oh, believe me, it's my pleasure. It's good to have an old friend and colleague to talk to now and again. Yeah, without without question, man. I, I, it's, it, it this doesn't feel like an interview. It feels like uh, just a conversation with family. My grandmama used to say, "Everybody related ain't family, and everybody who's family you don't have to be related to." I, I agree with her wholeheartedly on that. And that's exactly what we want to have. We just want to have a conversation. Um, before we start uh, talking about the Day of Empathy itself, can you tell our listeners more about what DreamWorks does? Yeah, sure. Dream so, Core, excuse me, not yeah, 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 Dream Core, Dream Core. Uh, <laughs> don't don't let Van hear that uh, too loud. He he very well may may try to uh, change our name. Again. <laughs> so so uh, Dream Core, formerly known as Cut Fifty, uh, we are co- we are co-founded by CNN political commentator Van Jones and also Jessica Jackson, who happens to be the legal mentor to Kim Kardashian. Uh, we are part of a larger uh, network called the Dream Core. Um, where there are three programs that fall within uh, the DreamCore umbrella. DreamCore Tech, that focuses on tech equity. Uh, DreamCore Justice, obviously 
the work that we do around criminal justice reform and Green for All. Green for All focuses on climate uh, justice. And essentially what our specific area of of focus is, is obviously around criminal justice reform. Over the last four years, we have emerged as the winningest criminal justice organization in recent memory. Um, And let me quantify why I say that. We have passed approximately 30 bills, 30 bills over the last four years, including the Federal First Step Act, which to date has released more than 16,000 people from federal custody. Uh, And when you quantify those numbers uh, a little bit more granularly, that means that we have approximately 500,000 years of human freedom restored back into our communities. And we are the only organization that was able to get the last administration to not only endorse criminal justice reform, but we were the only organization to pass a bipartisan criminal justice reform bill that the New York Times said is the most significant legislation since the 1994 crime bill. That's really exciting. And one of the things that I have a colleague um, across the country who anytime someone talks about what they want to do, he says, what are the outcomes? What are the outcomes? Tell me about outcomes. What I like about this conversation is you start out with outcomes. There are things that uh, that you've accomplished that are tangible you're not just operating in a vacuum as a think tank you're actually doing work and getting things done and that's impressive yeah and and you know i i I wish that i was able to say that um the reason why we got these things done is because van is such a great political commentator or that jessica is such a brilliant attorney or that i uh have a face that is made for radio uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but, um, the fact of the matter is that we, I direct the nation's largest bipartisan coalition of impacted organizers and advocates, people who are in substance abuse recovery, people who are crime survivors and people who are impacted by the criminal legal system, whether these people are children of parents who are incarcerated, formerly incarcerated folks, people who are felony disenfranchised and or family members who supported people that were formerly incarcerated. Um, I direct that network and that's a network of more than 5,000 people literally expanding in all four corners of our country and everywhere in the middle. Um, And it's the grassroots organizers, the people who literally are are on the ground that understand those closest to the problem are also closest to the solution, but often furthest from resources and power. And so we just function as the linchpin of the sort to bridge that gap um, so that those people who are, in fact, closest to the problem and understand the solutions can be connected with people in, uh, in power, um, uh, affluence, influence, et cetera. That's really exciting work. And one of the things that you mentioned about people impacted by the criminal justice system, we tend to think that it's just the individual who's locked up. And we know that when they're locked up, they're often forgotten, but their families are forgotten. The people that suffer, some of these, you know, many of these individuals, uh, you know, supported their family in one way or another. So now you've got issues on the social service system with those children, you've got family issues. It, It just creates a much bigger problem than just simply um, incarcerating someone for a crime committed. Yeah. I mean, look, when you think about this, um, you know, and, and the, the work that the Connecticut certification board, uh, which I happen to be a proud, uh, member of, um, the, the work that you guys are doing, not only just to bring about credentialing in the field, 
um, for people who, you know, essentially want to pursue a, a career um, uh, within the state of Connecticut. Uh, but when you, when you think about how our communities are criminalized due to substance abuse, right? Like prisons and jails is no space for people who are struggling in the mire of substance abuse, right? So we're criminalizing poverty, we're criminalizing substance abuse. We are thinking that we can arrest our way out of social issues. And the fact of the matter is that that's not how we, that's not how we should be in the business of, of recovery. That is not how we should be in the, in the humanity of you know dealing with people who have complex issues what we should be doing as a country what we should be doing in the state of Connecticut what we should be doing throughout the United States of America we should be having smart sense solutions to issues that plague people now we're not talking about look someone would make the someone would make the argument well yes there are people who need to be incarcerated there are people who commit uh, very egregious crimes there are people who are just you know uh, incorrigible and they are unrehabilitatable but yes we're not here to talk about Donald J Trump we're here to talk about <laughs> we're, we're here to talk about people who unfortunately um you know have been criminalized due to poverty they've been criminalized due to uh, uh substance abuse uh issues and that's that's just not right that's not right and that's not how our system is supposed to be functioning and, and that thought that you mentioned goes back to uh the late 60s, early 70s, with the beginnings of, of the war on drugs with the Nixon administration. But John Ehrlichman, one of his advisors, actually said, we knew we couldn't criminalize being black, so we criminalized drugs. We knew we couldn't criminalize being an anti-war hippie, so we criminalized marijuana. And and it all started from there. Yeah, and I'm glad... Wait, so, so Jeff, I'm glad that you said that, um, because oftentimes people who, uh, who, who listen to conversations as this, and when they hear... Um, you know, the issue around uh, mass incarceration, they just think that it's their problem. It's we, we try to dichotomize the issue. And there was a time in our country when we thought that the only place that people had problems as relates to substance abuse was in the Bridgeports of Connecticut was in the Harlem's of New York, was in the Comptons of California, was in the South Sides, uh, 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 on, the, on the South Side of Chicago, of Illinois. And then, lo and behold, opioids start creeping into Greenwich, Connecticut. And then it found, it found its way into Malibu. And then it found its way into Peoria, uh, Illinois. And now we went from they have a problem to we have a problem. And so when you look at the thread, of systemic racism in this country. This is not something that magically appeared on that fateful afternoon last May when we saw Derek Chauvin assassinate George Floyd. This is not something that happened uh, instantaneously when Breonna Taylor lost her life in the middle of the night. This is not something that happened when Trayvon Martin lost his life back in 2012 or Eric Garner when he was choked on, on, a New York, on, on a New York City street. This is something that is systemic and it even goes further back um, if you really want to tra um, trace, trace the threat to, to, to slavery. But I love the fact that you landed us and you squared us right, right 
in our lifetime, in a sense, not in my lifetime, because I wasn't born then. You, you, you were born when Lincoln. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were born when Lincoln had his baptism. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it, it, it squares most of our, our most of our listeners to a, to a time that they can probably trace back to and that they can relate to. And, and as we get closer to the day of empathy, can you tell us a little bit about the history of that day and what's going to happen? Yeah, without question. So the National Day of Empathy is uh, the nation's largest day of action around social and criminal justice reform. And we are organizing our sixth annual National Day of Empathy. So when you think about uh, National Juvenile Diabetes Day, when you think about National Substance Abuse Recovery Day, when you think about, and I don't even know if there is a day for that, but if there's not, you and I should probably talk about (laughs) putting that on the national calendar and some more work to us. Uh, But when you think about National Breast Cancer Awareness Day, this is the day that uh, you know we conceptualize to shed a light, to shine a light on the issues around social and criminal justice reform. And so essentially what we're going to be doing this year is we are organizing in at least 40 states nationwide. Um, we have grassroots organizers who will be meeting with their elected officials whether that's on a state, local, state, or federal level, um, talking about uh, essentially uh, uh, imagine virtual lobbying, talking about the bills that need to be passed in their communities, in their states, on the national level, so that we can get to a place where we are providing a springboard to success rather than perpetuating the trapdoor to failure for people who have been impacted by the criminal justice system. Now, 40 states, is that more than you had last year? Last year, yeah, I'm glad that you asked that question. Um, last year, when was last year? Was last year? <laughs> last year was the longest decade of our lives. It feels like absolutely true. Yeah. So last year, um, we literally had two weeks to pivot. Um, the National Day of Empathy is the first day. It's always the first day in Tuesday. This year, it's March second. Last year, um, because of the uh, 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 electoral calendar, we had to push it out to uh, 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 March 25th. But we got hit with COVID. <laughs> initially. So we had to do a hard pivot. And last year, I believe that we were in about uh, 25 states and we were poised to be in about 40 states. But just because of the uh, coronavirus pandemic, you, you had people who just could not focus on on uh, legislative advocacy, rightfully so. And even and then on a bigger scale, logistically, with what happened with COVID, it makes it nearly impossible to kind of organize uh, in, in so quick a manner when uh, when everything kind of changed in a quick amount of time. Yeah, without question, what I'll also say impressively, though, even with uh, the, the the states that we were in um, that were uh, essentially nominal by our standings, um, we had more than 204 million social media impressions. 204 wow. million social media impressions. Um, and we, we, expect, we expect and anticipate those numbers to go up even higher this year. Events like this don't just occur. They don't happen in a vacuum. It takes a tremendous amount of planning and preparation, even just to get the message out, like what you just referred to. Is Can you tell us about some of the behind-the-scenes efforts that, that you do to kind of get the work moving? Yeah, without question. So, you know, one of the, 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 the magic that, that we have, uh, uh, I, I, we, we call it our, 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 our secret kernel recipe. Uh, and, and this is we're only going to give you guys just a, a, a sample of what that secret is. <laughs> we, we, we are in an extraordinary position um, to leverage star power. Uh, in addition to the people power that you heard me talk about, the grassroots organizers, we have star power. We have the likeness of the Kim Kardashian who have more 
Instagram followers than some countries have citizens <laughs> combined. <laughs> uh, uh, we we have the we have the you know star power of Common and Alicia Keys and Hope Solo and uh, Amanda Gorman and Van Jones and uh, uh, Kyrie Irvin and uh, you know LeBron James and you know all of these other artists, athletes, and actors who are willing. Jeff Ross uh, who are willing to say, look, what did what can I do? to help amplify the issues that I'm passionate about. Now, these people, obviously, you know, if LeBron is on the court or uh, Amanda is, is composing a poem or Van is on television, obviously they can't be omnipresent. They can't be everywhere all the time, but we can do the work for them. And so that's what we tell them. Look, the only thing that we want from you is a, just a tiny bit of your star power. We just want you to retweet something. We want you to reshare our posts. We want you to do a public service announcement, um, a 60 second public service announcement. We want you to participate in an Instagram live. We want you to participate in a clubhouse conversation. We want you to literally lend your voice to this issue so that we can amplify it. And it, it, it's going to have an exponential uh, explosion in this social media world where we can get the word out far much more um, uh, far much more louder uh, than we could uh, in, in our own silo. And, and that's that's a little bit of our secret. I hope Kyrie Irving doesn't do to this uh, movement what he's done to every team that he's ever played for <laughs> and destroy the chemistry. But hey, that's I, just a that's what, just a personal opinion of mine. <laughs> hey, what, 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 one thing for sure, two things for certain. With me as the coach, I promise you that will not happen. <laughs> you know, you go from complaining and playing with LeBron James to destroying the chemistry on a Celtics team. To who knows what's going to happen in Brooklyn? <laughs> so, I, when you talk about the star power, ten years ago it may not have been as important as it is today because of, like you said, the social media world and that these individuals garner a lot of attention and what they say matters to many people. So when they get behind a cause that's important, it does, it opens it up to a, a group of individuals who normally wouldn't even be aware of that cause or, or what's going on or the issues related to it. And I think that, you know, although we struggle with that sometimes with uh, uh, being a cult of personality type of country, there are positives that we can take from it. And I think that that you're doing a very good job in terms of taking that and, and using that star power to help. Yeah, without, without question. So look, um, you know, uh, you know I, I ribbed you a little bit about, uh, uh, you know, uh, former President Trump. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, he had the largest megaphone in the world and we were able to hack into that. And we got people who ordinarily wouldn't have paid attention to criminal justice reform to pay attention to criminal justice reform um, because he paid attention to criminal justice reform. Now, you may have uh, exception to his his policies on other issues, but to paraphrase Jay-Z, I got 99 problems with 45, uh, but the First Step Act doesn't necessarily have to be one of them. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, when you have someone who has that much access to people, to people, right, um, and you have the opportunity to, to tap into and or, and or hack into uh, their megaphone, whether it's as large as the office of the presidency of the United States or it's as large on Instagram as the office of Kim Kardashian West. Uh, when you have that opportunity, you have to capitalize off of it. And one of the things that I often say is that, uh, to paraphrase Dr. Uh, Dr. King, there's a fierce urgency of now. 
What does that now mean? For me, that's an acronym for no opportunity wasted. When you have an opportunity um, to do something that you are passionate about and to be able to, um, you know, to really get your message across for something that has impacted you, you have to you have to seize the moment. And look, I was remiss not to even mention, you know, some of some of our listeners might be asking, why is Lewis L. Reed um, uh, passionate about criminal justice reform, considering that he is a Connecticut certification board uh, a member? Considering that he's a uh, LADC uh, and we talked a little bit about substance abuse, I'm glad that I asked myself that own question. I served nearly 14 years in federal prison. And it was while I was incarcerated that one of three things happened to me. First and foremost, it was my faith that sustained me. I am unapologetically Christian. Um, and the second thing that happened to me was that, <clears throat> excuse me, the second thing that happened to me was that an education passport opened up in my mind where I was able to matriculate through university, going to earn um, uh, uh, degrees and being able to understand, understand that education was going to be uh, something that I was going to leverage in order to better articulate uh, the post-incarcerated points that I wanted to make about the system um, that I had been impacted by. And the third thing that happened to me was ultimately this. I saw people on the inside. I never saw an inmate, Jeff. I never saw a convict. I never saw a criminal. I saw people who had committed crimes I saw mothers, I saw fathers, I saw nephews, I saw sons, I saw family members, I saw community members, but I never saw people who have been reduced down to the poorest decision that they made in life. And that, for me, for me, that humanized me. And that, 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 was, that was so humanizing. Uh, and I, and I'll, I'll say this before I pass it back over to you. I remember very distinctly, having this road to, to Damascus experience when I was reading the gospel of uh, St. Luke. And I'm not trying to proselytize anybody. This is just my faith. Uh, and I'm speaking truth to my faith. Um, I was reading the gospel of Luke. And I remember reading the situation about the Good Samaritan. And I looked and I saw how this individual who was injured, he was stepped over by someone who you thought, a priest, who you thought was going to respond to his emergency. And then came along a Levite who was skilled in the, in the, in the law. And that person walked across the street. And then the Good Samaritan came. And when the Good Samaritan came, you'll notice that the Good Samaritan never asked the individual, why were you traveling on this road at this, at, at this time? What did you do to provoke this incident? You were probably involved in some type of criminal, uh, 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 con uh, uh, continuing criminal enterprise that, that put you on this, on, this, uh, on this Jericho road. He never said any of that. What the Good Samaritan did was he literally got off of his horse, i.e. his place of privilege, his place of entitlement, and he went into his bag. He went into his resources to tend to the needs of the individual who was hurting. And I said to myself, if I'm going to be a good Samaritan, I don't necessarily have to wait for a burning building and a child to be dangling out of a window for me to take off my blazer and try to catch this child. I need to show up every single day and be somebody's miracle. And ultimately, when I'm judged, God is going, not going to say how many people 
did you uh, proselytize? How many how many how many bills did you pass? Ultimately, what he's going to tell me is whatsoever you did unto the least of these, that 70 million number that you talked about in your introduction, that 70 million Americans who have been who have criminal histories, that 19 million who are, live within our communities, that 2.2 million who are currently incarcerated, that 7 million number who are currently on some form of supervision, whatsoever you did unto the least of these, you also did unto me. It's true. It, 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 with what you're saying, in a uh, more of a laic kind of term, it's it's we as a, a nation will be judged by how we treat the most vulnerable of our population. Yes, that's um, right. So, and I, I th- that kind of speaks to the importance of the efforts that you're doing and, and why it is um, uh, you really get involved in your personal story. I'm not sure if many people knew, but about your your incarceration, um, but you using that time to become uh, something different, a better person, but it didn't change your character, it changed your behavior. Yeah, without question. You know, I I think that, you know, it it allowed me to become a 3.0 version of myself. And somebody would say, well, how did you skip over the 2.0 version to become the 3.0 version? Uh, And I'm glad that you asked that question because here's the thing, I discovered three things about myself, my inner diamond. Um, There was a song that, you know, a few years ago, it says shine bright like a diamond. Well, diamond has three points. I looked at my life retrospectively. I looked at my life introspectively and I looked at my life prospectively. And I said to myself, self, what are you going to do when you are released? How are you going to look at your life in the rearview mirror and atone for the things that you had done to people? How can you look at your life now to not make those decisions that you made before that got you here? And once you are released, how can you continue to be on that trajectory, um, you know, to, to essentially heal, heal folks? And look, I'm, I'm, I am unapologetically transparent. I can tell you that my, my post-incarceration has not been rainbows and unicorns. Um, I had the privilege of uh, uh, conceptualizing the uh, a reentry-based program for the largest city in the state of Connecticut, uh, in Bridgeport. Uh, I introduced that concept to the city. They uh, accepted it, adopted it, made me the inaugural reentry director. I was in that position for approximately two years. We had national success. We won uh, a best practice awards by the U.S. Conference of Mayors. We replicated the model and other jurisdictions. Uh, and then the rug was pulled from under me. I was rearrested in part for child support arrears that accrued while I was incarcerated. And so, um, you know, I slipped into a clinical depression um, at at, at that time. Um, I had suicidal ideations on more than one occasion, Um, but it was not just by the grace of God, um, but it was also by the support of family, family and friends. And ultimately it was really looking at my life that and retrospectively again, right? That 3.0 version of myself saying my best day, my worst day in, in society is better than my best day when I was incarcerated. And that helped me uh, walk out of that, that, that quicksand of depression, melancholy and everything else. So I understand that I'm intimately familiar with the, the, the struggles, the challenges, the complexities from a reentry perspective, uh, literally from the inside out. When we look at, at things as a series of behaviors or, or attitudes and thought patterns, they can be changed and addressed. We have to stop looking at things if it's a character issue on an individual, um, because having worked in the criminal justice system and pre-release with some gang members, things I saw a lot of decent human beings who made a lot of stupid decisions. 
Jeff, if you put a if you put a if you put a plant inside a dark room and you don't give it water, you don't expose it to light, and you came back and checked on that plant, as green as that plant may be, as vibrant as that plant may be on day one, if you come back and check on that plant on day seven, what's going to happen to that right, plant? It's not going to be the green plant. It's not going to be the green plant. And so if you take human potential, and if you put human potential in an environment that seems to be dark, it doesn't seem to be ripe with opportunities. It doesn't seem to have, you know, all of the nutrients that it needs to, to, to help flourish. What's going to happen to that human potential? It's going to translate into a nearly 16 year federal uh, into a 16 year sentence, uh, a federal prison sentence, i.e. Lewis L. Reed. And you're going to serve nearly 14 years as a result of that 16 year federal prison sentence. Yeah. I've, one of the things that we don't talk about is is that adjustment i've seen individuals go away for for five ten years you know significant prison sentences come out and have no idea how the world operates they didn't they don't understand they, they hadn't seen cell phones they don't understand social media they don't understand the way people communicate and i think it's important especially when with the work that dream is doing with tech equity that you're making access to people to get them caught up on the what's been happening you know while they were incarcerated Jeff, look, you, I think that you're talking about me. When I, I, when I went in, they had beepers. You remember? I mean, you remember when they had uh, Morse code. <laughs> when I went in, they had beepers. I came home, they have something that's called smartphones. And I'm as dumb as a brick as, as it relates to intelligence <laughs> at, at, at the time. So I, you know, I, 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 I distinctly remember I was in a halfway house in Hartford, Connecticut. And it was my first time day out on a home pass. And I went to CVS. And there were no, there was one cashier and the cashier was at the back of the store and it was self, it was the self checkout. And Jeff, I, I stood there frozen. My eyes were wide and I got like so much anxiety because I did not know how to operate the machine. And I remember it was a woman who stood in back of me. She tapped me on my shoulder and she said, are you okay? And I was like, yeah. And she said, you just came home from prison, didn't you? (laughs) Right. And so those those it's those intangibles, those those tech challenges that people have once you've been incarcerated for an extended period of time. How do you navigate that stuff? It's beyond you just going to your probation officer, your parole officer and them sending you to some job, some career fair so that you can get a job. It's beyond that. You need soft skills that are going to help you reacclimate back into society. And just to be clear, my first cell phone was a tin can with a string on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you mentioned something that I find is really important and I've learned over the years is often forgotten or not paid attention to and misunderstood by the public. The impact on the system to those who are released to community supervision, be it uh, parole, probation, the requirements that they're, that are set are often really just guides to failure for individuals because they're unrealistic. The The you're setting someone up for failure. Can you talk about some of these conditions? You just mentioned one, the soft skills, just the keeping up with technology and how the, how to go shopping. You know, it's, 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 you know, let's talk about, I, I, I'll speak about that specifically, but on, on the periphery, I want to talk about the collateral consequences of one felony conviction. If you have one felony conviction, there are more than 46,000 collateral consequences to that one felony conviction. 
when I came home, I remember going to the mall for the first time. People don't consider this. When you are incarcerated, all colors are muted. There's a lot of beiges. There's a lot of eggshell whites. There's a lot of browns. You don't have reds. You don't have blues. You don't have yellows. You don't have the, the rainbow. And I remember going to Trumbull Mall for the first time. And I had a sensory overload. So much so that the person, I mean, smells like it was, it was, it was entirely too much. These are things that I wasn't exposed to when I was incarcerated. And it was so much so that I remember making up some flimsy excuse with the person that I was there with um, to go back to the car. Uh, and I said that I had to check in with, 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 with the halfway house. And truth be told, I was scared. I was scared. I was, I was, I was scared because it was just so much. It was like it was like an alien being dropped down from Neptune all the way into Times Square. And you just having all of this stuff kind of like coming at you. Smell, sight, sound. It was just entirely too much. And so as we think about how people have to navigate, not just through those small things, but let's think about the larger things. Here it is in the state of Connecticut you can be denied life insurance. You can have served your time. You could be in the career of your choice. You can be prospectively a homeowner. You can be a taxpayer, but you can be denied life insurance if you have a felony conviction. Oh, not going back one year, not going back three years or five years or 10 years, indefinitely. If you have a felony conviction at any point in time in your life, you can be denied life insurance. In, in, you know, generally speaking, in the United States of America, like how you talked about, you can lose your right to vote. Uh, you, in some states, you can be denied social services. You may not be eligible for uh, food stamps. You may not be eligible for medical. You may uh, even vocational licensure. I can tell you, and I, I, you and I have never talked about this, but I, I'm, I'm going to tell you here in front of a, a national audience. One of the reasons why I am not in recovery, the reason why I got involved in um, substance, substance abuse, the field of substance, substance abuse recovery was due to my mother. Um, I lost my mother to incarceration when I was approximately five years old. I was raised by my maternal grandmother. And when my mother came home, here comes crack cocaine. And I didn't only lose my mom to incarceration, but her life was diminished as a result of her being uh, uh, a substance abuser. Thank God she's in full recovery. But when I was incarcerated, I said to myself, what career would I be able to be involved in post-incarceration where my criminal history would not preclude employment? And I said to myself, it's going to be in the field of substance abuse recovery. I'm going to help individuals who had been uh, emotionally devastated the way that I was when my mom went through years of ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. And so in some states, you can be denied vocational licensure or certification, not because you have a felony that's connected to the license or the certifications that you are you're applying for, simply because you have a felony. And I was part, I'm, I'm glad to have been part of a uh, legislative uh, push several years back in the state of Connecticut specifically, so that people who applied to the Department of Public Health for barber licensing or, 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 or a cosmetology certification, right, that these individuals would not be denied arbitrarily just because they have felony convictions. And one of the things that I love, 
I love about the Connecticut Certification Board is that you guys look at things on a case by case basis. I'm not listen for the, for the listening audience. I'm not saying that they look at things, you know, kind of like arbitrarily. And this is kind of like one of those boilerplate uh, uh, statements. Jeff and his staff, they literally look at things on a case by case basis. And they'll say, hey, look, one thing has nothing to the other. We think that you're going to have add value to the field of recovery in the state of Connecticut. And as a result of such, we think that you you uh, 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 should be certified to be a part of this board. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why I love your leadership and I love the Connecticut Certification Board. One of the things that we don't do in Connecticut that many other boards around is ask about criminal history. Um, because our role isn't to get somebody a job, isn't to do background checks. Our role is very simply to verify somebody's competency and their Criminal history has nothing to do with their competency. And maybe in some cases, it might add to it. But it's, it's not our role. It's Is this individual display the competency that's required? And we move forward. Um, there are certainly different things. If you're, if somebody's actively on probation, mm-hmm. you know, we say, hey, kind of lie low for, mm-hmm. you know, meet all your community supervision requirements things like that. Or if somebody gets a, you know, we'll look at it. If somebody is certified and gets a substance related conviction, we have to look at that uh, in a case by case basis based on what's happening in that person's life. But it's not a blanket thing. And I don't need to know someone's criminal history. Although most people are really honest about it when it comes to it. I say, well, thanks, but I didn't need to know that. It didn't, it, it doesn't affect our decision-making. And I'm proud that we're able to do that. And we fought um, at, at the IC and RC level to say that it doesn't serve our boards any purpose other than to stigmatize somebody. Yeah, yeah, without question. And, and I, I think that that's a reflection of your leadership. And I also think that it's also a reflection of your life experience. Right. Like, you, you know, as as polished and as pristine as you are, um, you, you come from you come from spaces where you have been exposed to people, to people who have made poor choices. You see the you 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 understand that the best of us can do the worst things and the worst of us can do the best things. And, and I, I think that that speaks to your leadership. And I, I, I also think that that speaks to why one of the reasons uh, the Connecticut Certification Board is uh, one of the premier uh, leaders uh, in the field of, of, of substance abuse recovery certification. Well, I'm very appreciative of those words. And, and thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I might even be blushing. <laughs> uh, and it goes it, it goes against my kind of self-loathing personality <laughs> of my own mistakes <laughs> due to my own mistakes. But, you know, we all move forward. The system itself creates such high levels of recidivism. And the outcome is that incarcerated individuals are out of sight, out of mind. How do we help the public see recidivism as a function of this system rather than simply being a function of that individual. And in reality, there are individuals who just continually live a criminal lifestyle and create their own issues. Mm-hmm. Recidivism rates are so high that it can't be based on an individual thing. It's the system that that creates such high numbers. As you mentioned one, being, being out discomfort, uh, just even being in a store saying, I can't handle this, um, that will get somebody to do something to get in a uh, situation where they feel comfortable. So, so here, here, here's the, here's the thing, 
when you talk about recidivism, <clears throat> there are several aspects of it. Are we evaluating recidivism by rearrest? Are we evaluating recidivism by reincarceration? Is that based off of county jail? Is that based off of prison, right? Do you know that if you have, if you are on probation or if you're on supervision of any kind and you have police contact, you could be, for instance, on one Martin Luther King Drive <laughs> anywhere in America, and everybody knows where that is, uh, one, uh, two Malcolm X Boulevard, and you could be going to see your aunt. You could be going to drop off some food to your aunt, who unfortunately has to quarantine because we're in a pandemic. And if the police stop you and you happen to run out of the house with no identification, and if you are currently on supervision, you can have a handful of groceries, bringing it to your aunt or coming out of, you know, a housing, uh, a housing authority, or you could be coming out of a certain neighborhood. And if the police stop you and you don't have identification, technically, that's a violation of your supervision because you have police contact. You have police contact and, and, and because you don't have identification to verify who you are and the police have to arrest you and that will detain you and bring you down to the police department to run you to verify who you are. That is recidivism. This is how asinine and how absurd our criminal legal system is. It, it, it creates these perpetual trap doors to failures rather than springboards to successes. Let me give you an example. Recently, last October, I was in a property that I own, my wife and I own, in Waterbury, predominantly white area. Uh, we have white tenants. The police show up. When the police show up, uh, I, I, and I'm there so that my step uncle can fix uh, a, a broken dishwasher. We're socially distancing. I'm standing by the door. My step uncle is working on the dishwasher. The tenants are, it's a split rent. So they're, they're, in the they're in the living room. I, the doorbell rings. I open the door. It's the Waterbury Police Department. I ask, hey, what can I do for you? They say that they got a complaint. I say that nobody called. Well, we got a complaint. My white tenant steps in back of me. She says, uh, we didn't call you. The moment that they see her, they say, we're, we're coming in. I say, you're not coming in. They kick open the door, they choke slam me, they arrest me in an incident that eventually ends up going viral, and they charge me with interfering with police. Now, here's the coup de grace. I'm currently on probation at the time for the previous incident that I referenced about having been arrested uh, for child support arrears in part while I was at the city of Bridgeport. That qualified a technical violation of my probation. Unsupervised probation, or unsupervised probation, mind you, I have been incident-free, but that qualified a, a, a violation of my probation simply because I had police contact and I was arrested. Not, I would, not that I was arrested because I'm out on some corner selling drugs. Not that I'm arrested because I'm in my home manufact manufacturing methamphetamine. Not that I'm arrested because I'm out knocking, uh, robbing a, 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 a bank or an armored car. I'm arrested in my home because I refuse to allow the police uh, uh, to come in a property that I own because I refuse to allow the police to come in. So when we're talking about the, how nonsensical our criminal legal system is, it is not designed to allow people to be successful. 
It is designed to keep people in. And I'll say this last but not least, we need to reimagine justice in this country where we incentivize wardens, we incentivize DAs, we incentivize judges not to incarcerate people, but to keep people, give people alternatives to incarceration. You think about this. The Department of Corrections in any state is the only institution that's in the business for failure. You may say, wow, what, what, what are you talking about? The, if, the, if, if, you went to, 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 if you were incarcerated today, Jeff, heaven forbid, and you were released tomorrow, and you went back on next Monday with three of your friends, the Department of Correction builds that into their budget and they get more money projected for how many people that they're going to have in custody in the next fiscal year. And we reward them for failure. So in essence, if they were a, a Fortune 100 company, we would have been driven, driven them out of town. If they were in business in any other sector, we would have been driven them out of town. But we don't think about it, that wardens we should be saying to the wardens, we should be saying to the Department of Corrections, we're going to give you money, not based off of how many people that you incarcerated, but based off of how many people you keep out of incarceration. Based on what you're saying, I think that our listeners, it, it, it's a good, it's great advertising, great promotion to get people involved to kind of work for a better system, certainly to work for a better system, which leads to my my last question on that is, is as we close, how can we get those listeners involved uh, with Dream Core and with the Day of Empathy? Yeah, look, so it's very simple. You can just text the word empathy to 97483. Just text empathy to 97483. You can participate in the National Day of Empathy, our national summit that's going to be happening on March 2nd is going to be broadcast on Revolt TV. Um, it's going to feature U.S. Congresswoman Karen Bass, uh, Senator Tim Scott, Van Jones, Hope Solo, Amanda Gorman. Uh, we got a musical performances by Music Soul Child. Uh, I mean, like we got the, we. I mean, we we got we got an all star lineup, man, and uh, it's going to be happening at six p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can view it live if you want your VIP tickets. You can text the word simply empathy to nine seven four eight three. Great, thank you for that information, and and I'll make sure that we get that out when we advertise this uh, uh, this podcast. I'll put that that text number. Uh, make sure I get that on the materials. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to once again thank Lewis Reed for joining us, for his passion, and also to express our gratitude to Dream Corps for allowing uh, him this opportunity to share this information with us. We here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. And please don't forget to follow us on Podbean, on iTunes, or your favorite podcast application. We will catch you next time. Have a great day, Lewis. All right, you as well.